I uh, recently read a story about a man named Hank Ott. He was just a, a middle-aged, unemployed man from the Netherlands. He was married to a woman from Ghana, and they lived on welfare with their two children in a humble Amsterdam housing project. He was someone that you would consider just an ordinary guy, that is until 1995, because that was the year while visiting his wife's hometown in West Africa that his life dramatically changed. During the first visit that he had ever made to that region, the local leaders of the U tribe pulled him aside to have a conversation. They told Hank that they believed he was the reincarnation of their deceased tribal chief, who happened to be his wife's grandfather. The U tribe, U tribe was made up of more than 100,000 people, and they had been kingless since the chief's death 17 years earlier. Well, as I said, these tribal leaders believed that Hank should be their king, and that's exactly what happened. In Holland, he is known as Hink Ott, but in Africa, he is Togbi, or king. And whenever he is around the U tribe, he is greeted with great celebration as throne bearers carry him through the masses of his excited subjects. Drums play and, and dancers spin. And the focus of all of their adoration is on this king who wears a crown. And when he's in Africa, lives in a specially built home. Several television uh, uh, documentaries have been made regarding this uh, story of this improbable ruler. It's really a fascinating story when you think about it. And I believe that the fascination comes from the fact that it is hard to imagine a story of a less likely king. Well, the reason I'm telling you this story this morning is in a very real sense, you and I know a similar story. It's what we've been studying over the last several months in John's gospel. It's the life account of someone who most of the people in the world at that time also judged as a very unlikely king. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. We've been studying his life now. So let's review why his story is indeed the story of a different kind of king. First, he grew up not in a palace, but rather a small town in the middle of nowhere. He had no servants. He worked a normal job just like you and I. And then one day, about the time he was 30 years old, he gave up his old job and he started preaching. He wandered all over the place preaching and he drew large crowds of people with his messages, even though he had had no formal theological training. But he was more than a speaker. He was also a miracle worker. He calmed the seas. He healed the sick. He even raised the dead back to life, which greatly increased his popularity. Then he ran into some trouble with the local authorities for claiming that he was not just a king, but the king, the son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. And with this claim, he managed to offend some of his own people as well as the local religious authorities. But there was a day, three years into his ministry, when this unlikely king was finally acclaimed by king, as king, by millions of people. 
And this morning, we come to John's account of this incredible day. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 12. We will be reading verses 12 through 33. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 33. I'll be reading from the New International Version. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, if you were here last week, John told us about a special meal that was given in honor of Jesus at the house of Simon the leper. I called it, if you recall, the next to the last supper. Well, in this morning's text, John shifts the scene from that dinner that took place in Bethany to a public noisy parade in Jerusalem. And you have to understand that all four gospels record this event because it was the only public demonstration like this that our Lord allowed while he was ministering here on this earth. In fact, the gospel account tells us another unique fact that Jesus was at the front of this pre-Easter, if you will call it, parade. 
Nowhere else do we find him at the head of the multitude. Before this event, Jesus chose to be surrounded by the people rather being out in front of the people. But not today, because today he led like a king. And this huge throng of people would have been there to watch him do so. You see, it was Passover. That meant that Jerusalem would be absolutely packed with Jews. Every male Jew that lived within 20 miles of Jerusalem was expected and required to attend the Passover. And since this was the principal Jewish feast, multitudes of people came from all over the world. In fact, no matter how far you lived from Jerusalem, every Jewish male had hoped that at one time in their life, they would be able to go to Jerusalem and to attend Passover. And to give you a better idea as to just how many people would have been in Jerusalem for this feast, 30 years later, a Roman governor took a census. It was a census to determine how many lambs were slain at Passover. His number, the count, came up to 250,000 lambs. Now, since one lamb was required for every 10 people, when you do the math, that meant that 2.5 million Jews were present. I happen to believe the year that Jesus appeared, the, the year that Jesus came to town, that crowd was even larger than that. And to give you an idea of the atmosphere, it would kind of been like that atmosphere and why it was the way it was during Passover. You have to understand why it was such a popular event because it was Passover commemorated Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, Egyptian bondage they were free of. They've celebrated this now throughout the Passover. And with this historical event in mind, the Jews of that day hoped that at some Passover, at one Passover, God would again deliver his people. But this time, their hope was that they would be delivered from their Roman oppressors. In fact, many believed that this would occur at a Passover. The Messiah himself would show up. They believed he would be a military, political Messiah and that he would lead the people in a victorious revolt against the Roman Empire. Well, when this particular Passover rolled around in 30 AD, it was widely reported that Jesus was the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. And many of the people who believed this, they, they hoped that, that Jesus would openly and he would publicly declare to be the Christ at this religious feast. And as the Messiah, they furthermore expected that Jesus would storm the gates of the Antonio Fortress that protected the temple and that he would drive the Romans out of Jerusalem like David did the Philistines. In short, they thought the best way to fix their world's problems would be to fix their government. And I think it's very important for me to interject here something. We've got to be careful not to make their same mistake. This world that we live in is a deeply fallen world. 
So its problems are not going to be solved by government. If you are waiting for government to solve our nation's problems, you can forget about it. And it doesn't matter what political party is in charge in case you haven't figured that out. We've gone 10 years blue, we've gone 10 years red, and it's the same old garbage. I got that off my chest. I feel a little bit better now. Thank you. You still love me? The only way that this world is going to change is when the hearts of the people change. And only Christ can do that. That's why he didn't run the Romans out of Jerusalem at Passover, because he didn't come to save the government. He came to save souls. Jesus was and is indeed a different kind of king. But the people didn't understand all that. And their response to Jesus' arrival that day clearly shows us this. And first, we see it in what they did. They waved palm branches. To them, this was a sign. This was a symbol of military victory. The symbol originated back in the second century BC when the Seleucid Empire ruled Israel. In those difficult days, there was a group of almost like military guerrilla warfare guys. They fought against the Seleucids. The leader of this group, his name was Judas Maccabeus, and he was much like Robin Hood for the Jewish people. And because of his determined efforts, in 164 BC, the Seleucids gave up and they let the Jews practice their religion once again in the temple. Later on, his brother, Simon Maccabeus, drove the Seleucids out of Jerusalem altogether. And when that happened, he was claimed as a national hero. And his victory was celebrated with something like a ticker tape parade in New York. But instead of ticker tape, that day, the Jews rejoiced by waving and singing, waving palm branches and singing at the same time. And from then on, the palm branch became significant to them as the symbol of military victory. And that symbolism became deeply rooted in the Jewish consciousness. In fact, when the Jews revolted against the Romans in the decades of the 60s AD, they dared to mint their own coins with the image of the palm branch on it because it was their national symbol of victory. So the crowd that day, they waved, they waved palm branches as Jesus arrived, but we also see their desire to be freed from the oppression of the Roman Empire when they said these words as Jesus entered the city, they cried out, Hosanna. Now we think of that word as a word of praise, but it literally means save us now. It's what they were crying out to Jesus. Save us now. It was their way of saying they wanted the Romans gone now, not later. Another thing that they cried out when Jesus rode in on that donkey was this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That comes from Psalm 118, a psalm that they considered a conqueror's psalm. Listen to the entire verse, Psalm 118, 24 through 25. Save now, I pray, O Lord, 
Oh Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's obvious from what the people did and what they said that they saw Jesus as a military leader, a king who would deliver them from Rome. That was what was on the minds of these millions of Jews on that day that Jesus entered that city. It's no wonder that the religious leaders said, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Well, John also tells us that sometime that week, a group of Greeks sought him out. Keep in mind that the Greeks were proselytes of the Jewish faith. And John says that they came to Jerusalem in order to worship. And I believe that they sought Jesus out because they had either been present or had heard about him cleansing the temple. Because after, if you don't know this or not, after his triumphal entry, Jesus, for the second time now in his ministry, he chased the money changers and the sellers out of the temple. Specifically, as you will recall, we talked about his first cleansing, he chased them out of the court of the Gentiles. And remember, it was the only place, that was the only place in the temple where Gentiles, like these Greeks, could go to worship. But they could no longer worship because it came a, a, a place of business. They weren't doing worship in there. They were transacting business. Perhaps these guys, as I said, were in the temple when this happened and saw what Jesus did. And this made them want to know more about the man who could and who would do things like this. They wanted, to make this. they wanted to meet this man who made it possible for them to worship again. So having shared all that with you, let me take you to what I consider is the focus of this text. Because as I have already alluded, what Jesus did that day reminds us that he was and is truly a different kind of king both in what he came to do, but also in what he asked his followers, his subjects to do. These are the two facts that I wanna build our study around this morning. So first, Jesus is different in that Jesus is the king who was born to die for his subjects. You don't ever see presidents or governmental leaders uh, announcing that this is the goal of their administration, do you? But that is why Jesus came. And this shouldn't have surprised his cabinet because Jesus had been telling his disciples this for quite some time. In fact, I reminded you last week that he had plainly told them just a few hours earlier as they approached Jerusalem in Mark 10, 33 and 34, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He's also tried to explain this to the throngs of people who witnessed his entry into Jerusalem on that day. But with millions of Jews crowding around, and in those days, not having public address systems, well, it was obviously impossible for Jesus to do so by simply speaking. His voice could not have possibly reached this large assembly of people. So 
This different kind of king made his point in a different kind of way. He, he borrowed a teaching technique used by the Old Testament prophets. They often used a very distinct method of getting their messages across. When words failed to move people, instead of talking, they did something dramatic as if to say, if you will not hear, then you will be forced to see. As an example, in 1 Kings chapter 11, there is a prophet by the name of Ahazah. And he conveyed a message to King Jeroboam by ripping his robe into 12 pieces. And the message behind that was simple. God was going to be splitting up Israel and giving Jeroboam a piece of it. And then if you go to Isaiah chapter 20, God told the prophet Isaiah to take off his clothes and shoes and walk around naked. And the message from that one was that God would punish Egypt and take her people away as naked prisoners. These dramatic actions are what we might call acted parables or, or, or dramatic sermons of some kind. So on that first Palm Sunday, when Jesus could not get the people's attentions through speaking, he did the next best thing. He used a particular prophetic method, and we see this in the choice of his transportation. Because he came riding in, not on a white muscular stallion, but rather on a donkey's colt. And this signified two things. First of all, it was his deliberate claim to be Messiah. Because by riding in on a colt, Jesus was enacting the words of Zechariah, chapter nine, verses eight and nine, where it says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and seated on a donkey's colt. With these object lessons, Jesus brought this prophecy to life, saying, let there be no doubt about it, folks. I am the long-awaited Messiah of God. But secondly, this also showed that he was claiming to be a certain kind of Messiah. You see, a, a donkey was not normally used by a warlike conquering hero. It was an animal that was more suitable to a man of peace or, or a priest or a merchant of some kind. Plus, the kind of donkeys that the people rode in the Holy Land are not like the donkeys we breed here in the United States. They're much smaller so that grown men actually have to bend their knees up in order so their toes won't drag the ground as they're being, as they're being carried around on them. And the, the donkey that Jesus rode was this small type of a donkey. Plus, it was a young one. A conqueror, oh, he would ride into the city on a white horse, perhaps, or, or perhaps marching on foot in front of his army. So a donkey would not be suitable for this kind of king. Because a donkey speaks of peace. A donkey speaks of humility. Jesus was making clear that, that he was not the warrior figure that people dreamed of. But instead, he was the prince of peace. He was telling everyone that he came to be the peace offering between sinful man and their holy God. 
Well, they didn't get the message, nor did the disciples. Not until after his resurrection did they get everything. That day, they didn't realize that, that Jesus was, in fact, a different kind of king, a king who came to die for his subjects. Perhaps if they hadn't been so focused on getting rid of the Romans, they would have understood this. You see, this unlikely kingly act was what Jesus was getting at when he said this in verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I mean, if they hadn't been seeking political freedom, they would have known what Jesus was saying. He was making very clear that the wages of sin is death and that he would be the bearer of that sin. He said, I will be lifted up on that cross and I will pay for your sins. I will die in your place. And of course, that was God's plan all along. Jesus was and is the Lamb of God who was, who was slain before the foundations of the world. It was always understood that Jesus would come to this earth, that he would live a sinless life, and he would, pray, he would pay the price for our disobedience. And he did so in order for all of us to be able to come home and be with him. Jesus was indeed a different kind of king. I mean, what other ruler are you aware of who would do such a thing? But of course, he is exactly the kind of king that we needed. We needed a ruler to come and to pay the price and to bring us back to our Heavenly Father. One of my favorite illustrations of this is, comes from a story of a, of a little boy who loves sailboats. And he had learned a little bit about woodworking from his father. So he decided to build his own little model sailboat and sail it on a nearby lake. He worked many, many months until he thought it was perfect. He spent many happy days selling that little boat on the lake near the shore. But one day a wind came and, and, and before the boy could grab a hold of it, it worked its way out further and further into the lake. And he watched it as, it as it disappeared. And for hours, he looked along the shoreline of that lake to see if he could find his boat, but to no avail. A few weeks later, he was walking in the downtown area of his town and he saw a familiar looking sailboat in the window of a pawn shop. He looked closely at it and sure enough, it was his sailboat, must have been found by the shopkeeper. So he goes into the shopkeeper and he explains what happened, but the shopkeeper wouldn't give him the boat. He insisted on receiving the full price for it, which was a great deal of money for this kid. So he goes home and he, and he works very hard for weeks and he saves his money. And when he has enough money, he hurries back to the shop and he bought back that little sailboat. And as he was leaving the shop, he held it up and he said to the boat, he said, you're mine twice. You're mine once because I made you and you're mine twice because when you were lost, I bought you back. And that is exactly what Jesus has done for you and I. Amen. He created us in his image, but we yielded to the tug of the winds of sin and we were lost. Isaiah 53, six says this, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. But God loved us too much to just let us go. He loves us so much 
that he sent his only son to Calvary to pay that enormous price for our sin by his son's own blood in order to buy us back. So now, when we respond to his gracious act, we are indeed twice his. First, because he created us, and secondly, because he redeemed us and he brought us back. I don't know about you, but I thank God that I serve this kind of a king. I praise him that his love is so great and gracious for me. In fact, I can never understand it, but in trying to understand his amazing grace, that's part of what drives me. It compels me to want to follow Jesus more closely today than I did yesterday, and that leads me to a second thing that I want to point out here. Jesus is a different kind of king in that Jesus tells us, us, in order to really live, we must die as well. I'll explain in a minute what I mean as your mouths drop. That's what our Lord was saying to these Greeks in verses 24 and 25. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus was saying that to experience true joy in this life, to be useful, to be fruitful in God's kingdom, we must be willing to surrender. Surrender our desires, some of our passions, some of our possessions, and if necessary, yes, even our life. Now, I understand all this stuff about dying. That's not a popular message. Calling for self-sacrifice, simply put, is no way for a king or any kind of a politician to gain the support of his subjects. I'm reminded of a cartoon that I saw once. It showed an adver advertisement for a seeker-sensitive funeral service, and it read this. Seeker-sensitive funeral. No body, no casket, no mention of the D word. You've got to realize Jesus specialized in the D word. He says that in order to live, we must follow his example and be willing to die. He tells us that ironically, the way to experience abundant life is for us to die to our flesh and our desires and put his will first, no matter where that might take us or lead us. We see the validity of this die-to-live principle in a lot of different areas of life. For example, the renowned violinist Paderewski who was once told by an admiring woman, she said, sir, you are a genius. To which he responded, madam, before I was a genius, I was a drudge. In other words, he had learned that musical brilliance came through death. Skill in playing that violin in the way that he could play it was a result of self-denial. It was a result of hard work. The famous runner, Jim Ryan, who set the record for the mile when he was 18 years old, he said this about his training. I would run until I felt I couldn't take another step. Then I would run until I felt my lungs were going to burst. When I came to that state, then I would run until I thought I was going to pass out. When I did this, I was making progress. 
Jim Ryan learned the key to victory on the track was self-sacrifice. It was dying to self. When you think about it, the same principle is true in marriage. By the way, happy anniversary. Chris and Sheena's anniversary is today. 12 years? 12 years. You guys are becoming veterans. The same principle is true in marriage. Marital bliss is really nothing more than self-denial. In fact, I once heard someone say, the basis for any happy marriage is found in embracing this paradox. Die a little, live a lot. Well, the spiritual life is governed by this similar paradox. We live by dying. We experience the abundant quality of life by saying no to our will and yes to God's will. We live by dying. So if your spiritual growth is, is stagnant, if your potential as a Christ follower is going unrealized, it may be well that you have to die in some way. I don't mean physically dying. I mean, you may need to die to some of the passions and the things that are a part of your life that are absolutely not productive for you, particularly when it comes to your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this principle more clearly in verse 25 when we look closely at the Greek. That verse said, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That first word for life in the Greek is suke. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And it refers to the life of the mind. It refers to the ego. It refers to our personal desires and our personal will. The other word is at the end where it says, we'll keep it for eternal life. In the Greek, that word is zoe. It means abundant. So Jesus is saying that every Christian has this eternal or divine life, this zoe life now. But to have it in its fullness, to have it completely, will only happen when your entire ego, your entire personality, your suki is surrendered to the Lord. So until we follow Jesus' example and we learn to die to our flesh, we learn to die to ourself, we won't ever fully live the abundant life that he's promised us. Oh, we'll have glimpses of it, and we do, thank God. But we will never fully experience what God has in store for us because we won't kill that flesh guy inside of us that insists on doing things that go contrary to the word of God. George Mueller was a man who had a tremendous influence for God. In the 19th century, this, this evangelist established 117 schools where he provided a Christian education for over 120,000 students, most of them who were orphans. He had an amazingly abundant, miracle-filled, joyful kind of a life. When someone asked him, what has been the secret of your amazing life? Mueller hung his head and he said, there was a day when I died. And then he hung his head a little bit lower, and he said, I died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, tastes, and will died to the world, its approval or censure, died to the approval 
or blame, even of brethren or friend. George Mueller is someone who found life by losing it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. All that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. With that in mind, let me ask you this morning, how close are you keeping to Jesus? How authentically are you following his example? How much are you dying to your flesh? How much are you dying to yourself? Chuck Colson tells a powerful story of Father Maximilian Kolbe, a Polish monk. He was truly a Christ-like person who was imprisoned in Auschwitz during World War II by the Nazis. Father Kolbe was subject to years of torturous manual labor, yet there, he was a constant source of love, godly love, and encouragement to the other prisoners. Colson writes this, one July night, a couple years after his imprisonment, the camp air was suddenly filled with barking dogs, soldiers cursing, and the roar of motorcycles. A man had escaped from barracks 14, which was Father Colby's barracks. The next morning, there was a peculiar tension as the ranks of phantom-thin prisoners lined up for morning roll call in the central square. The escapee had not been caught, and that meant death for some of those who remained. All the prisoners in the camp, except for those in barracks 14, were dismissed. These four men were ordered to wait, standing at attention as the summer sun beat down upon them. Some fainted and were dragged away, while others swayed in place, but held on only to be beaten by the butts of the SS officers' guns. Father Colby, by some miracle, stayed on his feet, his posture as straight as his resolve. He and his fellow inmates were forced to stand without rest or food all day. By evening roll call, the commandant was ready to levy a sentence. He screamed, the prisoner has not been found. Ten of you will die for him in the starvation bunker. And the next time this happens, 20 will die. Now the starvation bunker was a horrible way to die. The gallows, even the gas chambers, were better than this slow, agonizing death. After a day or two in this bunker, the condemned couldn't even, didn't even look like human beings. Their appearance and behavior even scared the guards. The heat and absence of food and water caused their throats to turn to paper, their brains to turn to fire, and their intestines to dry up and shrivel like dissected worms. Well, the commandant walked along the rows of prisoners demanding each man to open his mouth so he could see his teeth. Choosing victims like horses, soon there were 10 men. The last man chosen, a Polish Jew named Frandyszek Gasovnocek groaned aloud, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? Suddenly there was a commotion in the ranks. A prisoner had broken out of line, calling for the commandant. It was unheard of to leave the ranks, let alone address a Nazi officer, because to do so was cause for execution on the spot. 
So the commandant grabbed his revolver and pointed at the prisoner, yelled, what does this Polish pig want of me? Prisoners looked and gasped because it was their beloved father, Colby, the priest who always shared his last crust of bread with them. The one who comforted the dying and who heard their confessions and who nourished their souls. The frail priest spoke softly, even calmly to the Nazi butcher. I would like to take the place of one of the men you've condemned. Why, snapped the commandant. Colby calmly replied, I'm an old man, sir, and good for nothing. My life will serve no purpose. The commandant asked, in whose place do you want to die? I want to die for that one, as Colby pointed to the weeping prisoner who had bemoaned the fate of his wife and his children. The commandant agreed, and as Colby passed this other prisoner, the man's face was an expression so astonished that it had not yet become a face of gratitude. But Colby wasn't looking for gratitude. If he was to lay down his life for another, in obedience to the king of his life, this Christ follower had learned long ago a simple yet profound truth. That joy is found in dying and submitting his small will to the will of God. Well, as the hours and the days passed, the camp became aware of something extraordinary happening in the death cell. Past prisoners of this starvation bunker had spent their dying days howling, attacking one another, and clawing the walls in a frenzy of despair. But now, those outside heard the faint sounds of singing coming from the bunker. For this time, the prisoners had a shepherd to gently lead them through the shadow of the valley of death by pointing them to the great shepherd. And perhaps for this reason, Father Colby was the last to die on August 14th. If we were to go to Auschwitz today, we would find a perpetual flame that is burning there. And that flame is of a remembrance so we will never forget what happened, the atrocities that occurred in these camps, and so that they would hopefully never be repeated in modern history. But Colson pointed out that it was something much more than that. He said that the flame celebrates the fact that men and women who are enduring even the greatest of horrors can demonstrate the greatest of loves. It is not a monument to Father Maximilian Kolbe alone, hero though he was, it points ultimately to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for us on the cross. The master who did not come to be served, but to serve. The only king in history who died on behalf of his subjects. Frandeshik Gasanovicek, the prisoner, prisoner whose life was spared, well, guess what? He survived Auschwitz. And after the war, he spent much of his life bearing witness to the sacrifice that was made for him by Father Colby. He traveled across Europe and across the United States giving talks about this priest, who, and he helped dedicate churches, a Jewish man, helped dedicate churches in this priest's name. Until his death at the age of 95, he joyously told everyone about the man who had died in his place. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. It is unlikely that following Jesus here in the United States of America will require any of us to offer up our lives 
like Father Colby did. You may be right. You may be wrong. It might seem very unlikely. But let me share something with you that is highly likely. Most of us who carry the badge of Christ followers are not truly experiencing the abundant life that Jesus has provided for us. And if that should describe you this morning, if your Christian life is not where you want it to be, then let me ask you something. In what ways do you personally need to die? In what ways does your will need to be replaced by the will of God? Or put it, to put it another way, what part of your life would come alive if you died, if you let Jesus start to make the important decisions in your lifetime instead of doing it on your own and then throwing up a little prayer and saying, bless my decision, Lord? Would your marriage come alive if you learned to die a little bit to your own desires your own wants, your own selfishness in your marriage? Would your relationship with your children grow deeper if you died some? Would your work, would your career be resurrected if you died every day and you let Christ take over? Or in what way is your refusal to die getting in the way of you truly living? This is the truth of a life that is lived for Christ Jesus. The more dying you and I do to self, the more we begin to experience the abundant life. Liz, would you come forward in the worship team and help me as we start to close this down? Well, one thing we know for sure is that Jesus did die on that Roman cross for us. But we also know something else. Three days later, he rose from the grave with resurrection power. And it is through his work on the cross that we are saved and we can experience the abundant life that God promises us. And so this morning, we are going to remember his sacrifice as we participate in communion together. Communion is a time when we remember, when we give thanks, when we honor Jesus for what he did for us, offering salvation to all who choose to believe. And it is something, as I say all the time, this should never be a ritual, but it should become very, very real and very, very personal to each one of us. What I mean is we, we've got to enter this sacred moment with reverence with honor for Christ and, and, and with peace in our own hearts. The Bible makes clear two things that we must always remember during this time of communion. It's found in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 28. I read it every time we take communion. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First, we must never do this in an unworthy manner. 
Otherwise, we are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The unworthy part applies to those who are apart from Jesus. You are not yet in a redemptive relationship with him. You have yet to experience this. You are celebrating something. You are participating in something when you don't know the Lord that you know nothing about. All those who have not received salvation through Christ, you are guilty of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. And it is those two elements, the blood and the body of the Lord that saves us from our sin and heals us from our infirmities. So to participate in communion, you must ask Jesus to atone or to, to cover your sin. And that is done by praying a simple prayer of belief and confession, a prayer that acknowledges Jesus is God's only son and the only pathway to salvation, the only pathway to eternal life in the presence of God Almighty. It's when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and invite him to become the Lord of your life. It's a prayer that confesses these things in your own words, from your heart. And when you pray with sincerity in your heart, you will be saved. Jesus will save you. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness and you will be forgiven of your sin. And then you can participate also in this communion in a worthy manner. And you can also celebrate what Christ has done for you because you've now experienced it. Now that second statement that says, let a man examine himself, that certainly belongs to everyone, but I believe it especially belongs to those of us who have already received salvation. We must enter this sacred time making sure that we're not carrying around unconfessed sin that we're not holding on to beliefs and attitudes that run contrary to God's word, that we are not living a kind of life that contradicts the scriptures, the words of Christ that we say that we believe, that we're not harboring unforgiveness and anger towards another human being. Because if we realize through our self-examination that, that we are any of those things, then we too, must confess those things unto the Lord. And if we do this, this morning, everyone in this building, everybody who is watching online can partake of this communion with peace in our hearts, knowing that we are doing so in a worthy way, a way that is worthy of the sacrifice that Christ made for each and every one of us. So I want to have a moment of silent prayer as we prepare for this very sacred time. And all you're going to hear is the music playing softly behind me. And all I want you to do at this time is to seek God in your own way and in your own words. Clear up anything that would prevent you from participating in this in an unworthy manner. And then when we're done with our prayer, we will pass out the communion emblems and we will participate together. Let's bow our heads in silent prayer. Heavenly Father, you've read our hearts. You've heard our words. And we thank you for your forgiveness. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when 
just don't live the kind of life that you would expect of us. When we harbor rotten attitudes towards situations and people, we speak up and say things that would have been better for us to keep our mouths closed and forgive us for times when we should have stood up and defended our faith and stood there silent. Forgive us for anger. Forgive us for bitterness. Forgive us for all those things, Lord, that become obstacles to truly living the abundant life. Forgive us. We thank you for Jesus' shed blood that covers and atones for our sin. We thank you for that, Lord. And now as a community of believers, we are going to celebrate and remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward as we pass out the communion emblems. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, at their last meal together with his disciples, he had taken the bread and after he had given thanks, he told them, he said, this bread represents my body, which will soon be broken for you. And he told them that every time they were to participate in the Passover communion, that every time they did this, to do so in remembrance of what he has done for them. And so as we eat of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the bruised and battered body of our Lord that was broken for you. And as the scriptures say, by his stripes, you have been healed. You may eat the bread. In the same way he took the cup, he told them that this cup represents my blood, which is the new covenant between God and man, the forgiveness of sin. He said, every time you take communion, he said, do this and remember what I have done for you. So as you drink of this juice this morning, be reminded of the precious blood that was shed for the redemption of your sin. You may drink. Would you stand to your feet as we sing a song, please? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that precious blood that was shed to cover our sin. We thank you for your word that never changes. One thing we know about man is we're always changing, always accepting of new and more perverse things in this world, accepting abnormalities as normal, accepting truth as lies and lies as truth. We are so greatly deceived, Father. Thank you for your word that keeps us on the straight track toward you. Father, I pray that your word would become real to us. And when we hear things like we must die in order to live, that that would be our purpose, that we would learn to, to die to our flesh, die to our desires, and live with your desires in our heart, fulfilling the things that you have asked us to do. And that is not just to live for you, but to lead others into a redemptive relationship with you, to share your goodness, to tell others about the blood of Jesus. So as we go our separate ways, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you will go with us, you will guide and direct us. Father, uh, guide and direct the conversations that we have, the places we go, the people we, we are with. Pray that we would be a blessing to those who we come into contact with. Pray that we would be bright lights in this dark world and that brightness would come from your love that shines through us, that it would be undeniable, that people would see it, they would recognize it, and even ask what is different about us and open that door for us to share your goodness with them. I pray that between now and the time we gather together again, that you would keep us safe, safe from COVID, safe from sickness and disease. Pray that you would Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us that would prevent us from coming together and joining with our church family. We thank you for your presence, not only in us, but your presence in this place that is tangible, that we can feel, we can sense, that we are touched by every moment that we're in here. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your amazing grace and your mercies, as the scriptures say, that are new every morning. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for saving us. Thank you for this special time where we've recognized what Christ did for us, allowing us to have salvation. And as we leave here, Lord, let us walk boldly within our forgiveness, boldly within our relationship with you. And we ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.